Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's make a list of all the things we did not have on January 1st, 2000. You ready? iTunes, iPods, iPhones, in fact, any kind of smartphone, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Spotify. There was no Netflix, at least as we know it now, no MySpace, no Instagram. All right, well, what did we have? Well, uh, dial-up modems, Windows 98 if you were lucky, or Windows 95 if you weren't. Apple, still mostly a corporate basket case. Even Google was less than 18 months old at the time. If we look at music, we were mad for compact discs. They were still selling by the hundreds of millions, ensuring that the music industry was drowning in money. Vinyl, dead, dead, dead. The only thing that was keeping that format on life support were club DJs, who still preferred the feel and action of records over CDs in the booth. We had MP3s, and we had begun to trade music files online, but that was still a fairly clunky and frustrating experience for most people, unless you'd discovered this new thing called Napster that had been out for about six months. Now, fast forward about 10 years to December 31st, 2009. Everyone was getting smartphones. Global CD sales had dropped from a high of 26 billion US dollars in 2000 to around 9 billion in 2009 with no bottom in sight. The number would get much smaller yet. Meanwhile, vinyl was starting to come back. Everybody was using digital music files. Streaming services were starting to catch on. And Apple and Google and Facebook were among the most powerful companies in the world. The recorded music industry was in complete disarray, bleeding money, laying people off, dropping artists, and still trying to litigate their way back to their former glory. The first decade of the 21st century was an era of massive technological disruption. How did this affect our music? How did our music adapt? Let's examine this. This is the aughts, part five. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is our fifth and final look at the history of alt-rock of the first decade of the 21st century, or as we've been calling them, the aughts. And as we launch into this final installment and how technology disrupted and reshaped not just alt-rock but music in general, we need to review how things used to be and how fast this disruption occurred. At the beginning of the 2000s, the traditional cultural gatekeepers ruled. These were the institutions that determined what music the world got to hear. At the top of the pyramid were the record labels. 
Their job was to sort and filter through all the new music being made, sign the acts that they thought could help make them a buck, and then nurture and market and distribute that music to the rest of the planet. That's how they made money. The labels served as very fine filters. Only certain acts got through those filters. You had to be worthy at some level, either financial or artistic, to make it. And because the labels controlled distribution, this created an artificial scarcity, a controlled supply of new music. Now, this wasn't necessarily a bad thing because it kept the amateurs and the not ready for primetime musicians out of the ecosystem. The message to them was, come back when you're good enough. Come back when you have some hits. And this served to maintain an overall level of quality. This worked so well that other institutions popped up and their only job was to sell and promote what the record labels had on offer. And they did it at their own expense. Now, think about it. Record stores were built, they paid rent, they hired staff, and amassed inventory. Radio stations built their entire business models on the various genres being offered at any given time by the recording industry. Magazines existed just to cover music, and music video channels became outlets for what were essentially promotional films for artists and songs and albums. Everybody crawled all over each other for the opportunity to sell product for the record labels. But it was also very, very symbiotic, too. Everybody scratched each other's back and supported each other's efforts. And the result was an ecosystem designed to discover and disseminate music to the masses, all while making oodles of money along the way. These arrangements lasted basically unchallenged in one form or another for a hundred years. Labels, radio, record stores, magazines, and later video channels. Foo Fighters, along with Queen's Brian May, channeling Pink Floyd's screed against the music industry with Have a Cigar. Now, like I said, the relationship between the labels, radio, record stores, magazines, and video channels was very solid and very successful. Until the internet came along. For the first time ever, any music fan could easily bypass these traditional cultural gatekeepers. The buzzword was disintermediation. Because of the internet, no one had iron-fisted control of what music got out there, or to whom, and at what price. And like water getting into the foundation of a building, nobody paid too much attention until it was way too late. The seeds for the death of the traditional music industry had been sown back in 1982 with the release of the compact disc. These shiny new pieces of plastic stored music as digital files. But the creators, Sony of Japan and Philips of the Netherlands, neglected to put any locks on those files. The songs could be perfectly and infinitely copied. A decade later, personal computers had started to take off, thanks largely to Microsoft, first with its MS-DOS operating system, and then with Windows. By 1995, the Windows operating system required dozens of 1.44 megabyte floppy disks to install. And that's when the company moved to using CD-ROMs which are nothing but compact discs that contain data instead of music. This meant that more and more personal computers were purchased with a CD-ROM drive. At the same time, engineers were experimenting with ways to send audio down old copper telephone lines more efficiently. One of the results was a German compression standard called Motion Pictures Expert Group Layer 3, or MP3 for short. Now put the two together. 
It wasn't long before software appeared that allowed anyone to take a compact disc, place it into a CD-ROM drive in a typical personal computer, and rip those digital music files they contained to a much smaller and much more portable size, the MP3. The more computer-literate music fans started trading these files online. If you're old enough to remember, you might remember something called IRC. That used to be the place to go to trade files. Then came June 1st, 1999, when Sean Fanning introduced Napster, a very clever piece of software that allowed anyone anywhere in the world to reach out at any time from the comfort of their own home and find all the music they had ever hoped to have. Tens and tens of millions of recordings for free. And it wasn't long before music began to flow like water everywhere. The cultural gatekeepers soon realized that their iron-fisted control over the distribution of music was under attack. And while Napster was soon sued out of existence, other file-sharing programs popped up. Audio Galaxy, Nutella, LimeWire, Morpheus, Kazaa, BearShare, and so many others. Nothing was never available again. Nothing ever went out of print. Rare recordings were no longer rare, and no one had to pay anything for it. Again, I'll be honest, I was all over this for a while, and my thing was unreleased demos and alternate takes, like this. U2 with an alternate version of I Will Follow that was there for the taking through file sharing back in the early 2000s. It's available now in an official form, but back then, nope, you could search it out and find it online and take it for free. By 2001, millions of people were very comfortable sharing music via MP3s, and there were even a couple of clunky portable devices that allowed you to move MP3s off your computer so you could listen on the go. My first MP3 player was something called an RCA Lyra. It could store 30 songs. I thought this thing was magic. And I could get up to 60 songs if I cut the bit rate in half. Sounded awful, but still. The record labels began to panic. Napster showed them a digital future they did not want to see. And they didn't know what to do. So when Steve Jobs presented them with an online music store called iTunes, they felt they had no choice but to go along. Jobs had the labels over a barrel. And what he did next has had massive repercussions. He demanded that all songs be made available individually. No more of this business packaging a bunch of songs together into this indivisible thing called an album that had to be purchased as a whole. And if memory serves me correctly, I think the first song I bought from iTunes was this from Radiohead. At first, iTunes was simply a music management software. All it really did was help you organize the music that you had ripped to your Mac, and only Mac users need bother. It wasn't until April of 2003 that iTunes became an online music store, and then that really didn't explode until it was made available for Windows in late 2003. Now, let's back up just a bit. October 23rd, 2001, in the fog following 9-11, 
That's when Apple introduced the iPod, this little slab of metal, glass, and plastic. It not only worked great as an MP3 player, but it also became a status symbol. It was the device that saved Apple from bankruptcy. From the time it went on sale to the time Apple stopped breaking out sales of iPods in its financial reports, nearly 400 million units were sold worldwide. The iPod, and devices like it, made music more portable than ever before. It was easy to make custom playlists. It was easy to skip songs. And with iTunes, you were no longer tied to buying a full album at full price just to get the one song you wanted. So in other words, it took a tremendous amount of control away from the record labels and the record stores and gave music consumers a tremendous amount of control, personal control, individual control over their music. And things were never ever going to go back to the old ways. But this was just the start. The internet was going to cause more disruption, more disintermediation, and more havoc for the old guard. You'll see what I mean in a second. This is our fifth and final look at the history of alt-rock in the first decade of the 21st century, and we're trying to piece together how technology had an impact. As the new decade progressed, the music experience became more and more integrated with what was happening online. We've already talked about file sharing and iTunes and iPods, but this disintermediation, this breaking of the old arrangement between the traditional cultural gatekeepers and the new world just kept going. Consider MySpace. When it went online in the summer of 2003, almost no one was using the term social media. And yeah, MySpace often had a very ugly interface, but for a while, MySpace was a great place to discover new music. It was easy for an act or a fan to post music for anyone to sample. Unlike file sharing programs, the music on MySpace was legit. Well, okay, mostly. Okay, some of it was. But it was also very good for researching new music because for a while, if you were in a band, you had to have a MySpace page. A MySpace page was certainly easier to maintain than a website, and it was a platform that everybody knew about. A number of acts, directly or indirectly, took advantage of MySpace to promote themselves and to further their careers. British singer Kate Nash was discovered after she uploaded some of her music to her page. Same with Lily Allen. Owl City ended up with a nice deal after building a following on MySpace. The Arctic Monkeys had no idea what MySpace was, but they benefited from fans who created tribute pages with their music. That helped their fan base explode. And while Panic at the Disco wasn't discovered on MySpace, they did know how to use the platform to reach fans they otherwise wouldn't. Like some of these other artists, Panic was able to bypass radio, bypass record stores, bypass video channels, and all the old guard, and take their music directly to the fans, efficiently and instantly. And what's more, they could interact with fans in real time. This was new. This was radical. For a while in the middle aughts, MySpace was, for many people, a music platform, a place where you could post your music or search out music from an act you might like. Now compare that to a decade earlier. That kind of browsing could only be done in a record store. And even the biggest record stores only kept about maybe 100,000 titles in stock at any one time. And it wasn't like you could listen to any of the music before you bought it, right? 
Okay, some stores had listening posts or listening booths, but for the vast number of purchases, you were taking a risk. You had no idea what you were going to get for your 20 bucks or whatever. MySpace and iTunes changed all that. You could listen before you could buy. Of course, as a social network, MySpace was quickly eclipsed by Facebook, which first appeared on February 4th, 2004. It wasn't as music-focused as MySpace had become, but that wasn't the point. Facebook's victory was in the whole social network arena, where it quickly marginalized MySpace. And an even more seismic platform was about to appear. On February 14th, 2005, YouTube went online for the very first time. At first, it was just a place to post videos, a 21st century version of America's Funniest Home Videos. That, that was really it. Okay, wait a second. There was something of a musical inspiration for YouTube. One of the founders, Jawad Karim, heard about the famous wardrobe malfunction featuring Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake during the Super Bowl halftime show, Super Bowl 38, February 1st, 2004. He wanted to see what happened for himself. But then he got frustrated when he couldn't find any clips of the incident online. Then he got frustrated again at the end of the year with the massive Indian Ocean tsunami that hit Southeast Asia. Certainly somebody could come up with some kind of searchable repository of video. The result was a video sharing site he and his partners, Chad Hurley and Steve Chen, called YouTube. The first video uploaded shows Jawad at the San Diego Zoo. You can look it up. It's called Me at the Zoo. But then people started uploading songs. They started uploading music videos. They started uploading video shot at gigs. This was a huge, huge copyright problem. But that didn't bother Google, who bought YouTube on October 9th, 2006. How many songs are on YouTube? No idea. Tens of millions. And 400 hours of video are uploaded every minute. There were billions of views every day. And I've never been able to stump YouTube when I've gone looking for something really obscure. In fact, I often hit more than I don't. This is, it's incredible. I've used this example before because I'm still astonished by this. Years ago, I found a three-track EP by a Nashville group called 69 Tribe. It was on a label called Feralette Records. It was only available as a vinyl 12-inch single that spun at 45 RPM. I lost the record. Couldn't find it anywhere. Not on iTunes, not in any record store catalog. Nowhere to be found at all. Gone. Until I went to YouTube, typed in 69 Tribe, hit enter, and... From 1987, that's Bikers from 69 Tribe. I bet you that record sold like 14 copies, including one to me. I thought I'd lost it forever, but no. No, no, it's, it's on YouTube somehow. Amazingly. Another big tech development that changed our relationship with music was the smartphone. Up until the 2000s, mobile phones were, well, they were phones. Some had some low-res cameras. You could send some texts, but that was slow and mistake-prone because you had to type things out using that numeric keyboard. A few allowed you to play primitive games on a horrible screen, and you probably had some kind of built-in contact list, but that was it. There were a few outliers that allowed you to store some music, but uh, they didn't work. They, they were generally awful. The forerunners to today's smartphones started appearing in the middle 90s, but the less said about them, the better. They were, for the most part, clunky and heavy and awful. Anybody remember the Palm Trio? 
How about the sidekick? Then came the BlackBerry. That was a game changer. In December 2006, LG released a phone with a touchscreen. Nobody had ever seen anything like that before. But then it all changed forever on June 29th, 2007, when this happened. So, three things. A widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod, a phone. Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. The iPhone wasn't the first smartphone, but it redefined what a smartphone should be. And once it hit the market, other companies invested billions upon billions of dollars into research and development to catch up and then compete with the iPhone. You know how the MP3 player allowed us to become completely untethered from where we kept our music collection? The smartphone made it possible to be untethered from computers that sat on our desks. Smartphones were computers that we could take with us everywhere, connecting us to the collective hive mind through the internet. Good thing, bad thing, another issue entirely. But what we can say here is that smartphones that could also play music went from just curiosity to a must-have device. Instead of having all these separate gadgets, you know, you had a phone, you had an MP3 player, you had a digital camera, maybe you had something else, we had just one device. And as onboard storage got bigger and bigger, more and more of our daily music consumption came through not through our stereos, not through our computers, not through our radios, but through our phones. And to underscore the point, Apple used a lot of music and TV commercials promoting the iPhone just as they become famous for doing with their iPod spots. And this song from Weezer was used in a 2009 iPhone campaign. I'm a troublemaker, never been a faker, doing things my own way and never giving up. I'm a troublemaker, not a double taker. I don't have the patience to keep it on the up. I picked up a guitar. Weezer and Troublemaker from the Red Album, one of dozens and dozens and dozens of songs used by Apple in their TV commercials. As all this technological disruption was washing over the recorded music industry, there was panic. CD sales were in free fall. Piracy was still a major problem. The labels had begun to realize that they'd given too much power and control to iTunes when it came to distribution. At one point, Apple had at least 70% of the online music sales market to themselves. Meanwhile, artists were figuring out ways to go around labels and write to the fans. Done right, especially with the growing power of social media, this meant a much tighter bond could be forged with the fan base. At the same time, fans were getting used to the fact that they could reach out directly to their favorite acts. For the labels, though, this signified more loss of control. They were no longer the barrier between the fan and the act. Artists began posting stuff directly online. The barrier to entry for getting your music out to a worldwide audience dropped to practically nothing. Everyone now had access to global distribution. 
Fans could download phones right to their phones from practically anywhere. No more trips to the record store. The yoke of the cultural gatekeepers had been broken. People were openly wondering if anyone needed record labels anymore. And we did see some artists become famous without the need of relying on the old traditional recorded music infrastructure. Take the case of OK Go. Originally, they were all about self-promotion and made huge strides without signing to a label. They did later, but they had done all the early heavy lifting work by themselves through playing gigs and downloads and social media and some of the greatest word of mouth videos ever. Like this one, which has been seen on YouTube more than 60 million times. OK Go, viral music video stars. All right, now the bad news. Artists who depended on selling records saw their incomes plummet. The wide middle class of artists started disappearing. To make ends meet, artists had to tour more. And because touring became more important than ever, concert ticket prices went up. Older acts, bands with members in their 60s and 70s, who had relied on steady sales of their back catalog, saw their royalty checks shrink, and the only way to make up for that was to head back out on the road to unretire. Record stores started going out of business. Yes, there was a lot of music online, but a lot of it would have never passed through the filters of the old gatekeepers. And soon, a certain type of fatigue began to set in. There was just too much music out there. But it's even more complicated than that. A look at the anxiety tech has caused for music fans coming up next. 50 years from now, we'll look back at the latter years of the aughts as a time when music consumption changed forever. We in the industry used to talk about something called the celestial jukebox or the infinite jukebox, this theoretical place where all the music of humankind could be accessed by everyone. Well, we're here. It's called streaming. If you have an internet connection, you instantly have access to at least... 50 million songs. And that number keeps growing every month. Not that long ago, this was the stuff of science fiction. As the 21st century began, we weren't really keen on the idea of streaming. If you were any kind of music fan, you collected music, you possessed music. The knock against streaming was that you just rented it. You got all this music, but the moment you let your subscription lapse, it all disappeared forever. The record labels actually kind of like this idea but they couldn't agree on anything about how streaming should be offered to the public. There were a couple of industry-sponsored disasters in the form of press play and music net. And if you've never heard of either, don't worry about it because they're dead and buried. Now, to be fair, the labels couldn't get together to fight Napster with one unified digital system because that would have been considered collusion. They were only able to get around that legal roadblock by having two competing services. But both were so difficult and confusing to use that both Press Play and MusicNet were doomed from the start. For example, the labels behind MusicNet couldn't cross-license their music with Press Play and vice versa. There were other issues with digital rights management, rules on how many times a song could be burned to a CD, and a bunch of other things. It was just a complete waste of time for everybody. You might remember another attempted modernization, a company called Music Maker. They raised millions of dollars to launch a service that custom-burned CDs. The idea is that you tell the company which individual songs you wanted on a CD, and they would create it for you. 
Some had visions of these machines in every record store. So you would go up to the machine and you would tell it what individual songs you wanted. It would reach out to some database someplace. And within a few minutes, it would burn you a CD with those songs. Yeah, that didn't happen. The first non-label streaming music service was Rhapsody, which went online in December of 2001. Rhapsody still exists today, although it's been rebranded Napster when it bought the assets of that pirate program. Despite the huge legal and technical struggles, many other streaming companies jumped into the fight. And the one that has emerged as the biggest, at least so far, is Spotify, which was founded in 2006 and went online in 2008 and slowly rolled out in territories around the planet. Streaming is fantastically convenient and cool. Hear about something interesting? No problem. Sample it immediately. Pay the monthly subscription and you can store all your music offline. Opt for a free tier and you still get all the music for the price of having to listen to a few commercials. But some issues have arisen. What could possibly be the problem with having an infinite selection of music at our fingertips? Let's take this apart. The power relationship with the recorded music industry has been inverted. All the power and all the choice is now in the hands of the fans. Everyone has become their own music director who no longer needs radio or a video channel or a music magazine or a record store to spoon feed them music. But that also means the individual is completely responsible, completely in charge of filtering out all the noise, all the music they don't want to hear. When Napster took off the shackles, people went nuts. They could suddenly afford more music than they could ever have dreamed possible. So we gorged and gorged and gorged at this endless buffet of music. But then it started to become confusing. It was the tyranny of endless choice. What do you start with music? What is everybody else listening to? Yes, what I'm listening to now is good, but there's, there's, there's got to be something even better out there, right? In other words, good God, what am I missing? Skip, 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 skip. Meanwhile, our relationship with music began to change. In the old days, you'd buy an album for whatever amount and listen to the whole thing over and over and over again. You might not like every song right away, but after time, you maybe began to appreciate everything the artist tried to do on that album. And because you paid money for that album, damn it, you were going to learn to like it. Otherwise... Well, you had wasted your money. The financial relationship we had to that piece of plastic strengthened the bond you had with that artist. But with the infinite jukebox of streaming, the mythical celestial jukebox, we pay very little, if anything at all, for all the music we want. That tug, that obligation to listen because we paid dearly for something has disappeared. Our attention spans have shrunk we started skipping unfamiliar songs whenever they showed up in our stream. Without a radio DJ or a TV VJ, a writer or a trusted record store clerk, there's no one to give context to the artist, the song, the album, or the genre. Music has become organized noise, and it's become disposable. The easier it's become to access music, the less we've come to value it. I'm speaking in general terms, of course, and I don't mean to suggest that we don't love music anymore, but our relationship with it began to change dramatically in the aughts. We'll come back to this in a second, but I want to play you this. This was one of the most streamed rock songs of the first decade of the 21st century. And as I'm saying this right now, this song has been streamed 625 million times just on Spotify.
a ridiculously popular song on streaming platforms, The Killers and Mr. Brightside. We can go on and on about the effects streaming and music on the internet in general has changed our relationship with music, but we'll leave that for another time because it's such a massive, massive topic, and I think we're going to need a few more years to pass before we really begin to understand what's going on. Instead, the last thing I want to tackle about tech and the odds is the resurrection of some old technology, and that is the vinyl revolution. At the beginning of the decade, vinyl was almost stone cold dead. Record pressing plants were closing. Those that still existed couldn't get parts for their old machines. Vinyl was being relegated to the bin of history, like the 8-track. But then came a miracle. Remember how I said that record stores were going out of business because the sales of physical product was collapsing? Vinyl turned that all around. And to tell the story, we have to begin by talking about comic books. In an effort to boost comic book sales, a bunch of distributors and stores established something called Free Comic Book Day. It was an event held on the first Saturday in May and was designed to get people excited about comic books again. The hook was special issues would be made available in stores on that day. And the idea worked great. This caught the attention of some indie record store owners in Baltimore who were dying financially. So in 2007, they got together and said, what if we were to do something similar? And thus... Record Store Day was born. The idea was to create a worldwide event that encouraged people to put away their digital devices and their digital music files and rediscover the pleasures of hanging around in record stores with other music fans. They'd get labels and acts to buy in with special releases just for that day. And because vinyl seemed to be the most collectible thing, well, let's do that. From that first day, April 19th, 2008, Sales of vinyl has increased by double digits year after year in country after country around the world. Record Store Day has been massively successful with buy-in from stores, fans, acts, and record labels. And this was the beginning of the vinyl resurrection. But what's the story with this? I have a couple of thoughts. Some people wanted to have a deeper relationship with music than what digital files can provide. They want something to hold, to collect, to display. Listening to vinyl requires a certain ritual, opening the record, placing it on the turntable, dropping the needle. And there's also a certain pride in proclaiming that you love music so much, you're going to return to this non-portable and inconvenient way of listening. For example, if you want to skip a song, you have to physically get up, go across the room, and move the stylus. The result is that you get to experience the album as the artist intended we began to see a divide between music consumption and music connoisseurship. Digital files were great for just going through stuff, but CDs and vinyl lent themselves to connoisseurship, this idea of curating a personal collection of music you owned so you could go back to it again and again and again with pride. This is the best of the best of the best music of your life. And while you can do this digitally, there is just something about having a carefully selected music library that can be measured by the length of the shelving, something that has a pride of place in your home, and something that can be touched and felt and handled and pondered upon. Here is a special Record Store Day release from 2009. It's a 7-inch single from Jack White's Third Man Records and features his band Dead Weather with Hang You From The Heavens. Confuse you. I make a whole just to see how. See who can I put you? I like to let you bother. 
And that concludes our five-part look at alt-rock in the aughts. Keeping in mind that history is always a moving target, it's possible that if we were to do this kind of thing in 10 years' time, we'd come to some different conclusions. But I guess we'll see, won't we? One more thought about music cycles. Over the course of this series, we've referenced the idea that rock and pop have been in this endless competition for our attention. When rock is on the ascendant, pop is on the descendant. This cycle of 12 or 13 years can be traced all the way back to the 1950s. So, can we still use this pattern to determine where we're going in the future? Can we predict where music is heading like we kind of used to? Well, maybe, but we're going to have to modify our efforts. Now that everybody is completely in charge of their own musical experience, the idea of consensus has broken down. We don't have the traditional cultural filters, you know, record labels and record stores and radio stations and music magazines and video channels telling us what they think is worth listening to. Meanwhile, rap, hip-hop, and R&B have become vastly more powerful and popular. This adds a third element to our music cycle theory, and that makes things more complicated. Just look up a physics principle called the three-body problem. In other words, we are all on our own when it comes to choosing what music we want to experience. What does that mean going forward? Again, we're on our own. No idea where that's going to take us, but again, we will see. This program is available as a podcast through Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, basically, wherever you get your on-demand audio, please rate, review, and share if you get a chance. I can be found on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you're always welcome at my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day and comes with a free daily newsletter. All email can go to alan at alancross.ca. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.